like you said, no, no one has ever said this to me before, before watching this. And I sent this to you a couple, I guess it was mm-hmm. a couple months ago now. Um, and I remember telling you, this has changed everything. This changed the game. And um, we're, and se- we're at seminary that we aren't chumps here. Seminary yeah, students. Yeah. And for both coming from more or less like Protestant backgrounds where we take Jesus and Jesus, as Luther talks about Jesus's like image and or reference in the old Testament, almost too seriously. Right. Yep. Even in that kind of world where we look for Jesus behind every rock in the old Testament. I was never told this. No one ever said this to me. Welcome to the Belfast Podcast, dedicated to recapturing the Christian imagination. I'm your host, Luke Byler, and this week we're going on to part two of Daniel and I's discussion on typology. We get more in the weeds about uh, things from his book, Echoes in Scripture, and Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of God. These are books Daniel's been reading. And we also talk about a sermon from Tim Mackey where he talks about typology and Job. And this is something I had never heard of until I listened to the sermon. And I think it's something all of us can benefit from. It is an astounding way to read the Old Testament. And it might have been the way Jesus read it. I'm getting ahead of myself. So for everyone, this is a, um, a sermon that Tim Mackey did recently, um, back in April, I think. Oh yeah, the date's right there. Um, on the book of Job. Now we're going to cut to a part where he's not explicitly talking about the book of Job. He might reference it here and there. This, I don't know why no one has taught this more openly. In fact, I remember listening to the sermon and it was one of the key pieces of this whole idea of prophecy and all of that sliding into place for me to help me understand what I, this idea of prefigurement and how I think it works. So we'll hit two points within this sermon. Uh, both I think are very important. Um, so we'll get into the first. And yeah. We'll talk about so it. I'll, I'll just make this comment real quick before, before Mackie starts talking. This is a verse I've brought up in previous episodes that he's about to expound upon. Yes. And it is a verse that I talked about explicitly in my prophecy class last semester, or no, sorry, in my hermeneutics class two semesters ago, when we talked about what, what does it mean for there to be a census plenier, a fuller sense of the biblical text? Where do we get that? Is it even a thing? And I argued from this passage that Jesus believed in a fuller sense it had to do with him. And I didn't make the connections with prophecy explicitly at that time, but I brought this up then, I brought this up in previous episodes, but I have never, I have never been taught to think like this in terms of 
reading the Old Testament. Never. No pastor's ever said it to me. No person who I've ever been discipled by has ever said it to me. This is the first time I've heard this taught explicitly. And I think this is, to be honest, if we're just going to like sit down and take the Bible seriously, this seems pretty basic. It seems basic. It seems important. And like you said, no, no one has ever said this to me before, before watching this. And I sent this to you a couple, I guess it was a couple months ago now. Um, and I remember telling you, this has changed everything. This changed the game. And um, we're, and se we're seminary that we aren't chumps here. Seminary yeah, students. Yeah. And for both coming from more or less like Protestant backgrounds where we take Jesus and Jesus, as Luther talks about Jesus's like image and or reference in the old Testament, almost too seriously. Right. Yep. Even in that kind of world where we look for Jesus behind every rock in the old Testament, I was never told this. No one ever said this to me. Like, once you see it, it's one of those things where you go, oh my goodness, how did I ever miss it? It is literally right there in front of my face. Yeah. Said by Jesus himself. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. I go think ahead. we've delayed long enough. Let's play this because it'll make more sense after we've played it. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure we'll rant again. So, Chapter 24, Jesus summarizes the entirety of the Hebrew Bible up into one sentence. It's really remarkable. I don't know if you've spent any time reflecting sound on up? it, but it's right here. Yeah. Jesus said to his disciples, this, everything that just happened over uh, Good Friday and Easter weekend, this is what I was telling you about while I was still with you. Everything that is written about me in the Torah of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms, had to be fulfilled this Jesus is one of Jesus' shorthand descriptions for what we call the Old Testament. And then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures, and he told them, this is what's written, and he's not quoting here, this is Jesus' summary. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. This is Jesus's summary of the message of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament includes the book of Job, doesn't it? This is Jesus's summary of the book of Job. Right. <laughs> Pause for right. just a second. I'll, I'll let him continue. And he's going to ask this question, but I want to, for everyone who's listening, is that explanation everything? The Messiah must suffer and die, rise again. For the forgiveness of the nations preached in Judea and then all the, all the earth. Did you ever hear that as an explanation for the book of Job? And I'll take it a step further. Listener, what you know about the book of Job, be it nothing, be it you've studied the book of Job in detail. Do you think that's an accurate description of the book of Job? Because hearing him say this 
now in this point in the sermon. I had to finish the sermon in order to understand why that was an accurate representation of the book of Job. And it is, and it's brilliant. And we won't get to that specifically today. So go look up the sermon. You can see the words on the screen there. Um, for those listening, um, A God of Love, A World of Suffering, Job, Tim Mackey, The Bible Project, 4-6-2022. But it, it's amazing. But this, what he's arguing is not just this schema tracks on Job, but it tracks on to everything. It's the description of everything. How? that does seem like a hard pill to swallow. Ready to keep going? Mm -hmm. um, how many of you have tried to read the Old Testament before? Yeah, how'd that go for you? How is that going for you? Yeah, you know, you stick with the Psalms, right? Some of them, right? <laughs> Some of them, right? Right? But it's touch and go pretty much everywhere else, you know? Um, really? Okay, that's interesting. Um, you know, whenever I try to read um, the Old Testament, it's really actually hard for me, at least it was for a very long time, for me to see that that's, this is what it's about. Like, really? Um, and really, there's only two options. Um, one option is that Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about, um, and I suppose that's possible, but I think the odds are a lot higher that um, I just don't know how to read this literature. And that the questions that I bring to it are the questions that may be my questions, but they are not the questions that are going to illuminate what these texts are all about, including the book of Job. So at the risk of insulting your intelligence, I'm going to make it even more simple. Um, here's Jesus' summary, my clicker, click. There we go. There we go. Um, three steps. It's like it's really simple. The Messiah. You guys with me? Here's Jesus' summary. The Messiah, uh, which is one of many images in, in uh, the Old Testament to describe uh, a, a person whom God has selected and appointed for his purposes in the world, specifically to represent God to people and for, to represent people uh, before God. The Messiah, God's chosen, favored one. You with me? That's step one of Jesus' summary. The Messiah enters into suffering and to death. But then out of death and through the other side, that Messiah is vindicated from suffering and death into resurrection life and into what Jesus says, forgiveness and good news announced to all of the nations. In Jesus' mind, it seems so simple. It's like, yeah, just read it. <laughs> and like, that's what it's about. And uh, for many of us, of course, that's not, that's not our experience. And this is not, this is not an idle question. Um, this is a question that for me, as a, a new follower of Jesus in my early 20s, like I, I really had a difficult time. I was so down for Jesus. He's so, he is, he was and is so compelling and beautiful to me. And, but trying to, and he really cared about the first three quarters of my Bible. It's called the table of, in the table of contents, the Old Testament. But when I try and read this thing, it's like really, it's like talking snakes and cosmic floods, lots of sex scandals and violence and ancient poetry. And it's like, what does this have to do with anything? Anybody? Okay. So that's the question. If it really represents Jesus, 
how. How? An anointed one, God's chosen person or people, suffering, death, other side, new life, good news. Adam, God's image, representing God to humanity and humanity to God. God's chosen, chosen one, his only one, depending on how you want to read it. Exiled, suffers. Where's his vindication, his new life? Is there? Well, we'll see. Yeah, so... Um... Let me find the, the next timestamp real quick. Anything else to add before we get start here? I mean, you, you'll talk about this a little more later, but you see the same thing with Moses. You see the same thing with yeah. Noah, like Daniel. <laughs> it's everywhere. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, I'm going to talk about it. And we're going to talk about it even in the book of Leviticus um, for a second, because I as he said something, it, it really sparked. Um, I've been reading a book. Anyway, we'll, we'll get into that in a second. Let me go ahead and we'll play this last one because I think after this last clip, it's going to start to click more. This is Tim's thesis. This is G what he's claiming is Jesus' thesis. Yeah. Well, this is how this, you read the Old Testament. And this is the analogy that I think perfectly tracks on to how to read the Bible, period. In this way, and this is maybe another helpful illustration if the hammer doesn't work for you, um, is the Hebrew Bible is a lot, a lot like uh, Blue Note era American jazz. And anybody, next slide, next slide. Yeah, there we go. Come on. Okay. Um, so uh, Blue, Note, Blue Note label, anybody? Yeah, right. So this is a jazz label. It started in the late 30s, but really came into its own um, in the late 50s and early 60s. And um, when, when very few uh, African-American jazz composers get, get signed to large uh, music labels, Blue Note just like created the most genius group of music composers, I think, in my humble opinion, uh, in American history, John Coltrane being one of them. And what is really um, one of the uh, trademarks of this era of modern jazz music was that the first 30 seconds of any song was given over to giving you the melody, just the core melody. And sometimes it would be just 30 seconds, sometimes 20 seconds. And then the rest of the song would just be cycling through the core melody, and, but never identically and never the same. Every time you walk through the melody, you explore it from another angle. You explore it with another instrument. And so uh, this is one of John Coltrane's most famous albums and his famous song, Blue Train. Anybody? I mean, if you heard it, you, you, you would know. The melody is very simple. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da
There it is. All right. The song is 11 minutes long. <laughs> it's 11 minutes long. And it's that. But never like how I just sung it to you. Right? <laughs> actually, good. Uh, but uh, but the, you actually never fully hear the first statement identically ever again. It's just cycled and recycled, this time with the piano, this time with um, the bass, this time with the major chords turned minor, this time in harmony, this time at double tempo. And it's just every, and what, what this form of music is, it's a way of exploring just a few notes in one melody, but exploring the infinite potential that's possible when you look at those set of notes from all the possible angles. The Hebrew Bible is just like this. And the book of Job is like a jazz quartet that's 11 hours into the session. And by the time you get to Job, you've cycled through the melody hundreds of times. And so when the hostile one steps on to We'll end it there. So, I don't know if you have any direct comments after that. Nope, you just keep in mind Tim's idea here. Same thing. Jesus says, this is, this is what's going on. To fulfill all that was spoken of me in the Old Testament, the Messiah. Live, die, rise again, offer forgiveness. That's the blueprint. Those are the notes. And then that, in Tim's mind, is what gets turned and played at double speed and halftime with the piano now and then with the bass and the cello and the horns. So it's all these different angles, but it's all the same notes, same structure, again and again and again. Yeah, so um, to, to intro this next little bit, I'm currently reading, and I'm not quite finished. I think I have two chapters left, um, a book by L. Michael Morales in the uh, New Studies in Biblical Theology series called Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord? a biblical theology of the book of Leviticus. So it looks like that. Um, it's and, a very boring cover. Yeah, that's fair. Um, for a very boring book of the Bible, right? No one loves the book of Leviticus um, until you read this, and then it's crazy. Um, I'm going to read a section of it in a second, but first, um, before we got on, I took a scan of one of the graphs in it, and I think it is really helpful for helping us see this, this melody and how it functions. Did that come through clear? Mm -hmm. So um, I apologize for my finger poking on the, the bottom right there, but um, had to hold the page down to get the scan. Um, here we have the biblical narrative. So we start with the Tahom, the chaotic waters of nothingness. And God orders them in a specific way and creates Eden. And he places Adam and Eve in Eden. And then there's the fall. And they're ushered out of the garden, still 
presumably at the base of the mountain. Um, and then their children are ushered even further away, specifically Cain, and they build a city. And then the city becomes so corrupt and there's evil across the face of the planet. And there's some stuff with the sons of God and the daughters of man and all of that craziness. And we are then introduced to the deluge, the decreation of creation. But a few people are spared and they are ushered into God's presence, just like in Eden. And they come to rest on top, on the top of a mountain, just like in Eden. But then in a garden, one of them sins. By this the time, yeah, because of fruit. This time, not by taking forbidden fruit, but by taking too much fruit and getting drunk. And so the whole thing begins again, where subsequent generations decide to build a city, not for God, but for themselves. And we get decreation, Ur, the city of Ur in Babylon. And Abraham is called out of Babylon and he's brought to Mount Moriah. And there he sits at peace while the rest of the world is, and this is, I want to say somewhere in the Genesis 14, 15 range, he sits there with some foreigners and is a blessing to them while battles are going on in the valley all around them. And then he has his whole story and he comes back to Mount Moriah at the end where he is called to sacrifice his son. But this time, this time, instead of actually the, sacri the sacrifice actually taking place, an angel says, no, stop. There's a ram caught in the thicket. Take it out and sacrifice it in the, instead of your son. And there's some obvious parallels we can draw there. But what's more important is this movement. And so through the story of Genesis, we're still tracking this, this progression as we move from chaos up the mountain and then back down because of the, descents, the, the decisions we make that lead us into descent. Descent into Egypt. And Moses meets with God on Mount Sinai. And there, while the children of Israel are committing idolatry with the golden calf, they are, uh, he's up top the mountain, getting the commandments from God. And he comes down and he, he's angry and confused and there's so much to take in. And he goes back up the mountain and God's angry. And Moses does something interesting. He says, don't kill them, kill me. Let me be a sacrifice of atonement on their behalf. And God takes that act of selflessness as the act of atonement in, that, in their place and spares Moses. And tells Moses how to build the tabernacle. And so they're, they're deep in their sin. They're dirty from all the sin that they've done, but God desires to dwell with them. And so they have to be purified of this sinfulness. 
And so what happens? Because the tabernacle is the mobile mountain of God, the sacred space. Exactly. And so we've been tracking this movement from decreation and chaos and death up into the realm of God that is life. Right? To dwell with God is life. I shall give you life and life to the fullest, maybe we should say. Maybe that's what Jesus was talking about. I'm giving you the ability to dwell with God. And so we've been tracking this movement, life space and death space, and how we keep ramping up and then back down. And it should be noted that the tabernacle is modeled after Eden with two cherubim guarding it and the fire of the altar in the middle. And so you see the flaming sword spinning around. And the high priest has to make a sacrifice of atonement for himself, for himself to be able to go in to God's presence because he himself can't exist because of his sinfulness, his brokenness and the decisions he's made in the holy presence of God. Now, this isn't that a blood price needs to be paid. This is that to be with God is to be holy. And so, and um, Morales has a lot on this, a lot on this. Um, I'm going to read, I think, I hope this is the right section. I was trying to find out while you were talking earlier. Um, but at some point he talks about how um, these two goats of, on the Day of Atonement, and mm. the, the Day of Atonement is the focal point of the cultic calendar. Mm -hmm. um, it's Yom Kippur. Um, the Jews still practice this today um, differently, but um, it's still quite beautiful, quite important. Um, but there are two goats. There's the scapegoat. The and goat for Yahweh and the goat for Azazel. Yep. And we typically think that you kill the goat because it has the sinfulness on it. But it actually is the one that gets ushered into the divine presence. It suffers and dies and is raised to God in the flames. The goat with the sinfulness on it is actually the goat for Azazel that gets pushed out into the wilderness, into chaos descends the mountain and you can tell this because it leaves sacred space that leaves sacred space it leaves the camp because the camp is a bunch of concentric circles getting closer and closer to the peak of eden in the tabernacle in the holy of holies and the further away you get from it the the further you are from eden and so the goat to Azazel that goes out into the wilderness is being pushed off into death and chaos. And the only way, and this is what Tim was saying that tipped me off to, it's that movement, right? Messiah must suffer and die and be raised again. It's because the goat that's ushered into God's presence that isn't sinful and doesn't have sinfulness on it that standing as a representation of us has to die first in order to ascend to God. That's the movement that's taking place. Jesus is literally acting out Leviticus. So <clears throat> I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it and not fulfill it in the sense that we don't need to do it anymore, but fulfill it in the sense that 
I am the living embodiment of everything that the entire law and prophets and writings were pointing to in this movement right here that you see on the screen. So uh, I hope this is the right section. And if it's not, I hope I can make something of this section. Um, the tabernacle cultus did not by any means reestablish humanity's pre-expulsion intimacy with God in the Garden of Eden. Rather, it appears that Israel's situation may be likened to that of Adam and his family after the expulsion. Um, and so their, their goal wasn't to, you still couldn't enter God's space except for the high priest and him once a year. But the goal was to grow holy. And that's part of the movement of Leviticus too, as you move into the holiness code after the day of atonement, how to live in step with God and be holy as he is holy. Jesus quotes that from Leviticus. And so this whole thing is cycling back around. Um, <clears throat> so let me see. Oh, yes. And so the goat to Azazel moves eastward out of Eden, like Adam and Eve were pushed out of Eden, and like everyone has been moving eastward the entire time, building their cities. They built Babylon in the east, all of this eastward movement. And the goat that is ushered into God's presence moves westward. And so it's, again, this movement into God's presence through death, and then it's raised to life with God presumably, is the symbolism, right? We're not saying this is literally happening. It's the symbolism behind what's happening. And so you can see, and I guess I'll, I'll be done with this now, um, but you can see that the, this entire movement tracks on to what Jesus is doing. The anointed one chosen by God suffers and dies and is raised again whether that be a literal, literal, symbolic, metaphorical death, regardless, that's what's going on. So here, I'll stop sharing. Do you um, have anything to add to that, that idea? No. It's, you're just pointing out the same movement that is in Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of God is the same thing that Tim's pointing out. Yeah. And it's the thing that Jesus pointed out. And it's the thing that Genesis 1, 2, and 3 said. Well, I guess 2 through 5. It's the same thing that happens over and over. It's the same story, copy and paste. Ushered into God's presence, our sinfulness pushes us into exile. ushered into God's presence, our sinfulness pushes into exile. And it's only through atonement, which I think we have a very misconstrued notion of, that we are allowed back into God's presence. Not because God wants to keep us out. God gave us the atoning sacrifices in Leviticus as a gift. They were for us, not him, is what Leviticus says. It's not that he requires it. It's that this is the mode of life we're to live in in order to be reconciled to God. It's, it's beautiful, it's profound, 
And when you read it in scripture and you see it, I haven't been able to unsee it. So what does this do for our problems that we talked about in the beginning? Prophecy, fulfillment, Jesus, New Testament, Old Testament. Jesus' words of this is what to look for. So How does I, this ultimately help us? I guess is, yeah. the, is the question then that we need to answer. Yeah. So if it diagnosed a problem, we've been explaining something that is helpful and a way of looking at um, looking at the text typologically. What was the phrase from Luther? Um, phrase from Luther. From Hayes. Or from, from Hayes. Uh, let me get back to the page. I turned it to. Um, so there is consequently a significant difference between prediction and prefiguration. Prefiguration. These things that Jesus is pointing to, these that map you just showed us. This is how the story of Adam and Eve, of Noah, of Babel, Israel, the kings, the prophets, the exile itself pre-figure Jesus. This is why Jesus can say all those things in the Old Testament, they pointed to me. And I think the answer is when you, like you just said, when you see it, when you're able to look for the melody, when you know the rhythm you'll catch it just like when you rewatch the movie and you say hmm i get it now i see what's going on right i that thing that was super subtle oh it looks it's as if it just happened well because it did you just didn't know that when you first watched the movie, right? So I think this is a very helpful answer to the, what do we do with how the, how prophecy gets used in purpose in literal prophecy, as we had a short discussion about, but also how say Matthew uses prophecy from Hosea about Jesus and the Old Testament together. And I want to read just a short little bit from uh, Pete N's book, Incarnation and Inspiration, about that specifically. Is it really that much later? Anyway, go on. While you're doing that, um, I'll go ahead and say that, so to your point about earlier with Matthew 2, and I don't know if you, this is the part you're going to read now, but I think this, we've built enough groundwork that I can say this, um, and Richard Hayes makes this point in the book that I've just been quoting, um, Echoes of Scripture in the Gospels, that when Matthew is telling Jesus' story, he sees Jesus as a prefigurement of Israel as a whole, and it's mm -hmm. a whole story. And so because of dire circumstances, Jesus is driven into Egypt. And at the fall of a king, Jesus comes out. And then Jesus is baptized 
going through water and is then, driven to the wilderness. Whose story is that? I don't know. You tell me. You've got like four options from the Bible. Jesus being one of them, Israel being the other obvious one, right? And so it's the same beats over and over again that we're tracking. You also have two patriarchs that are driven into Egypt. Yeah. And both of them lie about their wives, by the way, which is funny. But I mean, even pre-Israel, you have this same motif. They're tracking the same stories over and over and over again, just hitting different notes each time. It's done masterfully. Enns says this. This is near the end of his chapter. To think of some of our examples above, it is difficult indeed to view Jesus coming out of Egypt in Matthew 2.15 as an objective reading of Hosea 11.1. What do you mean by prophecy? would be the question there, right? Because it's not explicitly in Hosea. The same holds for Paul's use of Isaiah 49.8 and 2 Corinthians 2.6. Now is the day of salvation. Neither Matthew nor Paul arrived at this conclusion from reading the Old Testament. Rather, they began with the event from which all else is now to be understood. The reality of the risen Christ drove them to read the Old Testament in a new way the figure that fulfills the prefigurement now that i see how it all ends i can see this part of the old testament too drives us forward what happened to your hand as an analogy it is helpful to think of the process of reading a good novel the first time and a second time the two readings are not the same experience who of us has not said during that second reading I didn't see that the last time, or so that's how the pieces fit together. That the Old Testament is not a novel, that the Old Testament is not a novel should not diminish the value of the analogy. Matter of fact, it might help us. First reading of the Old Testament leaves you with hints, suggestions, trajectories, and so on of how things will play out in the end, but it is not until you get to the end that you begin to see how the pieces fit together. And in that second reading, you also begin to see how parts of the story that seemed wholly unrelated at first now take a much richer, deeper significance. And this is where I think it gets pretty important. If Matthew, again, think about our prophecy discussion in the beginning, the one standing outside of time and those in time standing in that attention and still, if Matthew were transported back in time and told Hosea that Hosea's words would be fulfilled in the boy Jesus, and that furthermore, this Jesus would be crucified and rise for God's people. I am not sure if Hosea would have known what to make of it. But if Hosea were to go forward to Matthew's day, it would be very different for him. There, Hosea would be forced, in light of recent events, to see his words precisely because they inspired by God, the divine author, in the final eschatological context. In a stunning reversal, it is now Matthew who would show Hosea how his words fit into God's ultimate redemptive goal, the death and resurrection of Christ. And so Hosea's words, which in their original historical context 
the intention of the human author Hosea, did not speak of Jesus of Nazareth. Now do. I'll read that again. In a stunning reversal, it is now Matthew who would have to show Hosea how his words fit into God's ultimate redemptive goal, the death and resurrection of Christ. And so Hosea's words, which in their original historical context, did not speak of Jesus of Nazareth. They now do. The term I prefer to use to describe this eschatological hermeneutic is Christotelic. I prefer this over Christological or Christocentric, since these are susceptible to a point of view which I am not advocating here, namely needing to see Christ in every or nearly every Old Testament passage. Telos is Greek for the end or completion, fulfillment. To read the Old Testament Christo Christotelically is to read it already knowing that Christ is somehow the end to which the Old Testament story is headed. And as we saw with your graphs from what we see as the narrative beats in the Old Testament, they were setting this up for us anyway. So What's super funny is I kind of view the entire Old Testament as this low ball pitch, this very easy pitch to hit with the bat. Because once you get this idea, I mean, and it's, it's pretty explicit in some places, right? If depending on how you read, I think it's Genesis 15 with Abraham and the blood path covenant that they make mm -hmm. where they're cutting the animals up. It's literally God saying, if you break the covenant, I will die. Mm -hmm. or God with Moses, when the people complain and Moses, uh, God tells Moses, go to the rock and I will stand between you and the rock and strike, strike it. the rock. Neka is the word. And it literally means to strike or smite. It's a word used quite frequently when talking about like a death blow to someone. So strike the rock and water will flow from it. You strike the rock, water flows. You strike to kill God because the people have sinned. And water flows from it. Oh, Gospel of John. Cool. Yeah, we're good. We're good. Right? Water flowing from his side. All, all of that. Like, It's the same story over and over and over again with different notes, and different beats, same melody, and it's beautiful. Right. And I think what's important, even in that great jazz analogy that Maggie gives, is that it's not exactly the same every time. You're going to see differences. Yeah. Maybe it's a different instrument. Maybe it's a different character. Maybe how they exactly relate to the other characters is different than the way it happened the previous time. Because Saul is different than David. But they end up having a similar story. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's sped up in this narrative, but it's slowed down in the other. Maybe the minor changes to a major chord or the major to a minor chord, right? Maybe it's 
Samson. You know, pick your character, and I'm sure you can find it. Yep. But it's not going to be this. I this is an important thing to note. It's going to be different, right? Because in the stories you just gave about Moses and the people. It's the same thing, but different when Moses stands on Mount Sinai and says, well, okay, I'll take the blow now. God says, okay. It's the same yet different when Abraham takes his son to the mountain, to the top of the mountain to be the sacrifice that God tells him. But as you said, he offers someone in there place it's the same thing yet it's different the setting is different the characters are different the time is different the relationships are different and what's interesting about that too and this might just be you could call it cool trivia but i think it shows the cohesiveness of the whole story the central thing one of the central things in that story is the altar and the word that's used for it is eights which is wood same or wood or trees same word that's used for the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil of, of good and evil. And so even within that, you're not just pointing potentially forward to something. You're not prefiguring something that's going to happen simply. You're also pointing back to the pivotal moment in the garden and how everything has been building up to this point. And Abraham's whole story is centrally located around trees you have him resting under the trees of mamre in um which is sight ra sight which is related to you know eve saw that the fruit was good for knowledge like it's all connected right it's the same beats repeating it's the same over beats over but, again. but as different. you see them they're different different and then they're layered mm-hmm Right, because you're you're using the beats of the story that are about the fall, but maybe not the fall. But they're yeah. these again. If we're reading it like someone actually designed it with intention, you're going to see these things. So there's Eve and the fall and the sight, but Abraham in some sense, is redeeming those things as he sits under the tree, right? Mm-hmm. Fulfilling yeah, exactly, the promise exactly. of the covenant. It's the reverse of Eden. That moment is the very reverse of Eden. Now, I don't know if we've hit this point home enough or if you want to take it somewhere else before we move on to our next... I don't even remember what we have next. Um, oh, figs. Yeah. Good old figs. So um, I think I should read the, uh, the short little paragraph from Richard Hayes. Mm-hmm. Um, again, talking about this time, a type of typology, intertextual links. Um, And then I guess we can get into your paper if you'd like. Yeah. Okay. So um, this is a little bit later in his introduction. His introduction was very, very good. Um, 
and just setting the stage for a lot of broad topics. And um, the whole book, Echoes of Scripture and the Gospels, is talking about intertextual links between the Old Testament and the New. Um, and just to be ultimately clear, to insult your intelligence a little bit as the listener, what you just gave as these illusions that are given about sight and trees and that's intertextuality within the old Testament. Yes. We see it yes. all over the place. Yes. And all the things that I just said about sacrifice and, and characters and mountains. Yeah. All intertextuality of the same themes that repeat like the notes in the song in different ways at different times. But again, if you know the themes, if you know the melody, if you know, if you know the structure, you're going to see it. This is this is how, again, it looks as if it happened yesterday. Well, because it did, but like the beats in the story are continuing along that, well, there's a lot of things going on underneath what's happening, but you and might not is, know it. But if you've mm -hmm. rewatched it and watched, like there's things I caught in Prestige the fifth time I saw it, the 10th time I saw it, little lines by care. And I was like, oh, there's another one, there, but it's all intertextual to what you know as the large narrative. If you know the nar larger narrative, you can pick up on all this small stuff. So you're about, but you're about to give examples of how what we opened with as a, as what part of what we're trying to alleviate here is how, say, Matthew uses Hosea, right? The yeah. New Testament interpreting. Um, Christoteleologically, the Old Testament, because of how they see the story in different hues, because of Christ. Yeah. Is that, is exactly. that a fair? Yeah, exactly. And I'm not going to, with your paper, we'll get into specific examples. Mm -hmm. And then I have more stuff from Hayes that we can use to color that in a little bit. But with this, we're going to be talking about intertextual links. So hyperlinks between texts, not just within the same book, but across testaments. Mm -hmm. And how these things can color the way we see things and how this is a type of typology. It uses the context of one place to repeat a theme somewhere else that then fleshes out the meaning, excuse me, the meaning where we have it. So um, <clears throat> Marty Solomon from the Bema podcast, he calls this remez usually. Um, Richard Hayes calls it metalepsis. So he um, uses this term here, metalepsis is a literary technique of citing or echoing, he uses that term quite a lot, a small bit of a precursor text in such a way that the reader can grasp the, sig the significance of the echo only by recalling or recovering the original context from which the fragmentary echo came. And then reading the two texts in dialogical juxtaposition. The figurative effect of such an intertextual linkage lies in an unstated or suppressed point of correspondence between the two texts. And so what he's saying is you have something that exists in the Old Testament, right? And this thing, um, well, we'll get into it in a second. Let's say a fig tree. Okay, and this, this fig tree is described in certain ways with certain characteristics. Cool. And then when Jesus curses the fig tree, 
in the Gospels, he's not just cursing the fig tree to do something. And you might be able to read the passage and understand what's going on just without understanding that, that background. But once you understand that background, it's not just a black and white picture anymore. It's in full color. Like it's in HD, baby. Like a whole, it's, it's brilliant. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah, 4K. There we go. Yeah. So Jesus was caught in 4K. Oh my God. I yeah. Myself. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, we, we have this, we, these links that exist help us to further understand what's going on in the story because they're operating with an understanding of some cues already that come from before that moment in the story. So, I'll let you take it away. If you made it this far, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Belfast Podcast. As always, you can reach out to me at belfastpodcast.gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at the Belfast Podcast. And if you haven't, please subscribe. It's right down there. It doesn't cost you anything. You can hit the bell notification if you want to. Get notified whenever we post. I'm trying to post once a week here, Mondays or Wednesdays, shooting for Mondays. Sometimes it gets crazy. Sometimes it's Wednesday. You know how it goes. But anyway, I appreciate all of your guys' support. Um, if you want to rate or review us on iTunes, that would be amazing. Help push us up there. And then leave a like, leave a comment here. Tell us what you thought. Is this, a, is this something you've heard of as far as interpreting the Old Testament? Or is this brand new to you? And what do you think? All right. We'll see you next week for a conversation about figs, fig trees, and the temple. <laughs>